0: Welcome to a new Arab Digest podcast season, our fifth. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. You know, we're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without advertising. As our colleague and podcast contributor Jim Crane kindly commented on the Apple Podcast platform, we are a vital and unbiased source. Knowledgeable hosts who take no money from the usual suspects leads to refreshing clarity, on difficult questions. Thank you, Jim. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, will you consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. I'm delighted that our season-opening guest, coming to you from Washington, D.C., is the Cato Institute's John Hoffman. John, a Regular Arab Digest podcast contributor, is an analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Institute. His research interests include U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, Middle East geopolitics, and political Islam. John, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me. There's a clear mood afoot. In the Gulf Monarchies of this robust and militarized nationalism, you wrote about it in a recent foreign policy article, which is also available on the Cato Institute website. But for the benefit of our listeners, John, what are the key components to this new nationalism that's emerging in the Gulf states?
1: So there's a new form of this top-down, state-sponsored nationalism, rapidly taking root inside of uh, the two most powerful Arab states in the Persian Gulf in particular, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And whether it be efforts to maintain high oil prices, the introduction of these new domestic mega projects, uh, ventures into global sports, or increased outreach to Russia and China, almost all of the domestic and foreign policies of Saudi Arabia and the UAE can kind of be traced back to these new nationalist strategies. Now, at their core, these programs are top-down efforts to restructure national identity and state society relations, albeit still underneath an authoritarian rubric inside Saudi Arabia and the UAE. In Saudi Arabia in particular, Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is attempting to reorient national identity away from a sole emphasis on religion, as has been the case in Saudi for decades since its founding, and towards this new idea of what it actually means to be, quote unquote, Saudi. In the UAE, Mohammed bin Zayed is also attempting to restructure national identity across the seven emirates that constitute the, uh, the United Arab Emirates towards a more cohesive sense of what it means to be Emirati. So in many ways, uh, this new nationalism is the new authoritarian foundation upon which uh, Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed seek to establish their control. And both leaders have already amassed more power domestically than any previous ruler in the history of, uh, of either country. And they wish to preserve this absolute authority long term. But these these nationalist projects extend beyond just the domestic. Uh, They also involve efforts by Riyadh and Abu Dhabi to assert themselves to the forefront of the region's geopolitical landscape. Saudi Arabia and the UAE are involved in almost every conflict zone, every geopolitical fault line spanning the greater Middle East and now they're at the forefront of the region's recent move towards this, you know, de-escalation as as it's been referred to. And globally, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are recognizing the emergence of a new multipolar global order as a reality and are positioning themselves to best advance their own interests and become global players in the process. So as this, you know, as these projects evolve, it'll have massive ramifications for the Middle East and the world.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting. As you say, it's, it, it it's a major tectonic shift, isn't it? From what it used to be America was the guarantor, the security guarantor. And as you say, now these States are in a multipolar world, uh, playing the, the poker hand much differently. But what I want to know, John, you're in Washington. Um, as I said, a tectonic shift that upends decades of all kinds of policy assumptions. Have Washington policymakers really grasped what is happening in Abu Dhabi and then Riyadh? Have they really got their heads around it?
1: I th- I, think, I think Washington sees changes happening whether it be these domestic quote unquote reforms in Saudi Arabia or, you know, Riyadh and Abu Dhabi trying to increase their posture abroad. But I think they're lost when it comes to the underlying catalyst driving these developments. So they see, they see changes, but they don't know the nuances of what's happening here. These tectonic shifts, as, as you called them correctly, they're about two things at the end of the day, power, in money, and these of course aren't mutually exclusive; they <laughs> often go hand in hand. Um, but that these shifts are the product of ruling elites in Saudi Arabia and the UAE seeking to respond to changing domestic, regional, and international contexts. Domestically, Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed view the success of these nationalist projects and the kind of reformulation of authoritarian rule as existential. Um, this desire to create a new and sustainable bedrock of personalistic dictatorial rule has resulted in the increased securitization of policies and society inside Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They, you know, as you know well, Bill, they are fiercely repressive and silence any critics of their policies. And this repression is likely to increase as the stakes surrounding the success of these nationalistic pro, uh, projects also increases so this uh th- this news that we keep seeing of new forms of repression of just wild sentences being handed to people for twitter well, I mean, for for tweets and things like that this is going to continue to happen and it's only going to get worse and also critical To the future of these enterprises is whether these governments can actually follow through on their promises of economic success and whether Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed are able to project themselves domestically as the best guarantors of uh, either Saudi or Emirati national interests. So, you know, look, intense nationalism that they're trying to generate can easily generate forces beyond the control of the state, even highly authoritarian states. And if Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed fail to deliver on these, you know, Vision 2030 projects and things like that, they risk being targeted by the very nationalist forces that they're currently actively encouraging. And looping back to the the Washington angle here, How the United States chooses to react to these developments is going to be critical. Uh, Diverging objectives between the United States, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE should call into question the quote-unquote blank check policies Washington has provided to Riyadh and Abu Dhabi for decades yeah why should the united states continue to subsidize the security of these two as they seek to restructure authoritarian rule and project their influence abroad goals of which neither are inherently beneficial for the united states but as as i know we'll get into today biden appears to be going the complete opposite direction and not recognizing these uh, tectonic shifts at all
0: yeah that's and it's interesting you make the point about nuance because one of the things I think we'd both agree on is that America has never shown itself to be particularly nuanced in its foreign policy and most <laughs> no, particularly in, in the Middle East. Uh, let me ask you now though, John, uh, because you've been extremely critical of President Biden's efforts to add Saudi Arabia to the Abraham Accords. Uh, this was the Donald Trump initiative, of course, that, that brought in Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates and uh, Sudan, Morocco. They've all sort of jumped aboard that particular train. Um, So recognizing Riyadh, recognizing Israel, first of all, can you take us through what those
1: efforts entail and and, and what's on the table here? Yes, so so I, I have indeed been very critical of this, of Biden's grand plan of adding Saudi Arabia to the Abraham Accords, primarily because of the massive concessions and threats to U.S. interests this grand deal he's currently pursuing would result in. So the Biden administration is currently considering going where no U.S. president has gone before. He's thinking of and pushing hard for signing a mutual security pact akin to like a NATO type article type five sort of deal with Saudi Arabia in return for Riyadh normalizing relations with Israel. The Saudis are also demanding U.S. assistance on developing a quote unquote civilian nuclear program as part of the deal, because of course they would never, ever, ever seek a bomb. Um, but administration officials have been making regular trips to the Middle East to coordinate with their regional counterparts on this issue. They are very much steamrolling ahead, trying to get this thing signed, sealed, and delivered. But it should go without saying that a move such as this would be utterly disastrous for the United States and the Middle East. It would entrap Washington as Riyadh's security guarantor, despite a fundamental disconnect between U.S.-Saudi interests and values. And it would formally cement America's commitment to the underlying sources of regional instability within the Middle East. Let me me come in
0: there, John, because I just want to
1: be clear about
0: this. If there was an instance where uh, there was unrest against Mohammed bin Salman or against Mohammed, well, let's stick with Mohammed bin Salman. If there was unrest against Mohammed bin Salman, would the United States be required then to go in into what would be a domestic situation and
1: prevail or help to prevail on the side of uh, the Saudi crown prince? Precisely, 100%. And this is a, a point that I think a lot of people... A lot of academics and a lot of uh, uh, commentators miss, but of course, also policymakers miss. Is look, everybody's pointing to that this deal is going to be some way, shape, and form as a way to you know protect Saudi Arabia against you know Iran or something such as that. But this type of framework would also require the United States to come to the protection of Mohammed bin Salman if Saudis were to rise up against uh to rise up against the kingdom so this is in a way not only a way to guarantee Saudi Arabia's position and the overall balance of power this is cementing our commitment to Saudi Arabia's authoritarian structure we will be called upon to come and crush the next arab uprisings or whatever ha- may have you that happens in in riyadh and you know if as i've argued before this begins with Riyadh, but this is going to become now a springboard for other countries to make similar requests of the United States and make similar pressures. And Washington has failed to recognize a simple fact. When it comes to U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia, less is more, and Riyadh is not an ally. You know, John, it's it's, it's really rather
0: disturbing to think of that situation and and it's ironic too, isn't it, that Biden has so vigorously embraced a cornerstone element of Trump's transactional and often very erratic handling of foreign policy? Why has he done it? What what is America getting back in return for this enormous commitment? What's what's in it for America? I'm I'm struggling to to get that one.
1: Oh oh, I'm struggling with you, Bill, because I, there is nothing America is getting in return here, and. You know, and it's interesting that, you note Biden embracing, you know, what was a cornerstone element of Trump's foreign policy. And I think the issue here is structural, that this problem extends far deeper than Trump, Biden or whoever comes next. And it's because the commitment to the underlying misunderstandings and failures of U.S. Middle East policy is unfortunately overwhelmingly bipartisan. And, you know, this is this is a rare case of bipartisan unity in Washington that we remain uh, overwhelmingly committed to U.S. dominance in the Middle East. And this you know bipartisan unity, what is accomplished? It's resulted in policies detrimental for the region, policies detrimental for uh, American interests, while fueling special interests and furthering the objectives of a narrow political elite here in Washington, D.C., the, the Abraham Accords have sim- simply just assumed a central position in the overall calculus of elites here in Washington on how to maintain its dominance in the Middle East. So this is, you know, this is just a continuation, a, a kind of the culmination of decades of failed policies that are, have been embraced by both sides of the political aisle.
0: You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Washington-based MENA foreign policy analyst, John Hoffman you probably noticed, or maybe not, that our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. I want to come back to that article uh, you wrote uh, that I mentioned, the Foreign Policy article, about how both Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Syed have pivoted away from military intervention into soft power and diplomacy. Uh, One simple example is this huge uh, surge into uh, what we call football here in the UK and what you guys call soccer. Um, Yes. (laughs) So what is the evidence uh, that you're seeing? We touched on one, which is the the football example, but is it proving to be a winning strategy for uh, MBS and MBZ?
1: So it, it, it seems for the time being to do so. You know, this is uh, this turn towards de-escalation is is again the result of changing context, you know, as as domestic, regional, international context change. So, too, does the strategic calculus of leaders in places such as Riyadh and Abu Dhabi and. You know, MBS and Mohammed bin Zayed have come to see diplomacy currently as the best way to advance their interests, whether that's, you know, ending the blockade against Qatar, mending relations with Turkey, um, reintegrating Syria's Bashar al-Assad, or this grand, you know, rapprochement, whatever you want to call it, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, this turn towards diplomacy is because of context that currently favor de-escalation. Now, despite this current turn towards de-escalation, the underlying distrust and geopolitical tensions between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and their regional competitors have certainly not disappeared and are very easily able to be reignited. These conflicts are best thought of as frozen, uh, but these contexts can shift rapidly, as can you know the policies of MBS or MBZ. These hard turns towards nationalism also bring incredible risk. Clashing interests can easily reignite old rivalries or create new fault lines. And competing nationalisms, particularly between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, have become more public as MBS and MBZ are trying to establish themselves as the respective dominant actors in the Gulf, in the Middle East more generally. So, that, so that's that sort of interrupt there, John. But that is a very good point yeah. you're making because, of course, Mohammed bin Salman
0: is pouring hundreds of billions I think it's approaching a trillion now into uh, ramping up uh, tourism in Saudi Arabia and he's taking
1: dead aim at Dubai on that one, isn't he? Oh, absolutely, whether it be competition over tourism, competition over foreign investment, oil production. Uh, or competition in places such as Yemen and even Sudan. There was a good foreign policy uh, piece a couple months back. I forget who who wrote it. Um, but no, the, 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 these competitions between Saudi Arabia and the UAE are becoming more public. And, you know, at, though the current context favors de-escalation, this can change rapidly. And as we've seen, you know, over the past dec- couple of decades, MBS or MBZ are, uh, or Saudi Arabia and the u- UAE, more generally, are more than happy to use either hard or soft power to u- to advance their objectives.
0: Mm. Uh, and America is more than happy to sell them the weapons, as are many other uh, weapon suppliers throughout the world. To uh, oh, absolutely! <laughs> the, the amount of weaponry that's being poured into this very volatile region is quite quite staggering in and of itself. But I want to come back to. Biden's efforts to shoehorn Saudi Arabia into the Abraham Accords. Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, was in Riyadh hoping, uh, I suppose, against hope that Mohammed bin Salman would not abandon Palestine. Was he drawn on a hiding to nothing? And, And what is the likely fate of Palestinians? You know, particularly given what's going on now in the West Bank with settler violence growing by the day and new settlements being approved by Netanyahu and this most extreme government in Israel's history. What, what are the chances
1: for the Palestinians? Yeah, uh, yeah, I saw, you know, that Abbas has been communicating apparently with MBS directly. And uh, it, it was reported over the weekend that White House uh, Middle East advisor Brett McGurk traveled to Saudi Arabia where he met with, quote, senior Palestinian Authority officials regarding the deal. Uh, I've seen also that uh Saudi Arabia would cons- has stated that it would consider re- resuming funding to the PA as part of this big mega deal. but look I think I think it's pretty clear that Abbas and the PA are operating according on how to <laughs> advance their their own interests, not the interest of Palestinians nor do they have really any tangible authority. Uh, to deal with the ramifications of this deal. You know, Abbas has long been viewed as an ineffective leader by Palestinians, and that's just aside from the fact that Israel itself exercises essentially absolute control over the Palestinian territories anyways. But at this point, given the fact that this deal in some form appears to be inevitable, it seems that Abbas is more so trying to position himself to come out of this thing unscathed as possible while protecting himself. And regarding the Palestinians uh, writ large, they will, as always, come out on the short end of this entire deal. And this is what the Abraham Accords were designed to do. They were designed to sideline Palestine and sideline Arab publics or the Arab street, whatever term you prefer. While coordinating this high-level cooperation between political elites in the Middle East who want to preserve the status quo, and you know, and that also extends to political elites in Washington, so the Palestinians will, as always, get the short end of the stick here.
0: Yeah, I, I know. And certainly, my my time in the West Bank recently, speaking to Palestinians, who are not political at all, but their views on the Palestinian Authority and Abbas are trenchant, and they've oh, yeah, utterly abandoned by Abbas and by the Palestinian Authority, and they have nothing but contempt for them. So it's interesting you're arguing that basically he's there to cut a deal for himself and presume, presumably attempt some sort of legacy of uh, fig leaf. Look, you have described the Saudi normalization of Israel, which, as you say, looks like it's it's, it's going to happen. This gambit as the biggest Middle East foreign policy blunder by America since the invasion of Iraq. So we're going back 20 years now, John. Now, we know that you mentioned that McGurk's been, been uh, in, in Riyadh. Uh, Barbara Leaf apparently is there as well. She's the State Department Middle East uh, senior diplomat. You know, what strikes me, and I, I know what strikes you, John, um, is the, the kind of lack of coverage in um, the American media, because if we are looking at something as big, as you're suggesting, a blunder as serious as as the Iraq war. I'm not really seeing it playing out much in American media. But also, what about the apparent lack of concern or awareness among politicians of both parties about the risks involved? Is the US just simply sleepwalking into another Middle East
1: disaster? The administration is certainly steamrolling ahead at tremendous speed, and and, and it hasn't helped that a lot of this news that's been coming out has been while Congress has been on recess. But if the United States enters into a mutual security agreement with Saudi Arabia and agrees to help facilitate their quote-unquote civilian nuclear program in return for Riyadh normalizing with Israel, then yes, I think this will be the greatest foreign policy blunder since the invasion of Iraq, possibly worse. The lack of coverage in U.S. media and the lack of outcry from congressional members can only be summed up as truly and utterly terrifying. The United States will not gain from this deal. The United States will not move towards stabilization from this deal. This deal will only serve to exacerbate the underlying problems in the region, entrap the United States in the Middle East, and provide a springboard for other illiberal actors to pressure Washington into similar concessions. And, you know, the the Congress uh, returns from recess, I think just did, uh, uh, the Senate did, I think the House returns, I think maybe on the 12th or something. So, you know, of course, I would love to see far more outcry from Congress, far more pressure against this, uh, this deal. And, the United States in general is in need of a desperate fundamental overhaul to its Middle East policy. And let's hope, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's really just down to hope at this point that you, the U.S. media and policymakers begin to wake up to this brewing disaster before it's too late.
0: Now, I understand, John, you're going to be talking to some uh, politicians on both sides of the fence uh, in, in, in a little while to um, And you're talking to them now as well are are you getting a sense that maybe the realization is starting to dawn the the
1: light bulb may be coming on i I think some are starting to realize that you know uh, this would serve to permanently entrap the united states in the middle east at a time when we're getting more involved in ukraine at a time when we're getting you know tensions are heightening in the asia pacific uh, yes, later this month, I'll have a more formal sit down with people on the Hill, you know, discussing this. I know at the Cato Institute this month, soon, uh, we have a comprehensive policy paper coming out written by myself that tries to punch holes in all the strategic arguments for a strong U.S.-Saudi relationship and then hammers home at this grand deal being considered by Biden. So there are people in D.C. such as myself and many of my colleagues who are working hard to raise this issue. Um, And I just hope, you know, it's, it's received well by people on the Hill. And I hope that, you know, we can start throwing wrenches into this entire process. Well, John, let's
0: hope that some of them are listening to this very podcast and uh, and that the uh, the words are falling into ears that are open and willing to consider uh, some of the points that you've raised this afternoon. Thank Thanks Absolutely. so much for talking to me. Absolutely, Bill. Thank you so much for having me on. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Cato Institute's John Hoffman. I hope you're enjoying the A.D. Podcasts. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. You may have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like John. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of more than 180 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Herb Digest, essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.